Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Scott Belsky graduated from college and worked for Goldman Sachs. That's where most people would like to build and end their career. But instead, after a few years, he quit his cushy corporate job, and he took $18,000 he had saved up to do a largely bootstrap startup. He later sold it for $150 million, and he went out of his way during the sale to help turn half of his employees into millionaires. So he accelerated their unvested equity, as well as allocated additional value across the board to people based on what we felt like their future grant would have been. And, uh, and it, was, it was great. I mean, it was really rewarding. Um, and I will never forget the conversations I had with each person, you know, where I knew each, each of their situations. I knew about their college loans. I knew a lot about these things. Because as a bootstrap business, you get very intimate with people's financial situations because you're working with them to figure out what, what will make it work. And, uh, you know, to deliver, to deliver that news um, and see their faces and then share it also with the whole team was probably one of the most like emotional moments of my life. Belsky then went on to become a startup investor, and he was one of the first people ever to put money into companies like Uber, Pinterest, and Warby Parker. He joins us on this episode of Success, How I Did It, a Business Insider podcast that explores the career paths of today's most accomplished people. I'm Business Insider's U.S. Editor-in-Chief and your host, Alison Chabantel. Today with us, we have Scott Belsky, who's a venture partner at Benchmark Capital, or Benchmark just these days, I believe. Uh, <laughs> he also is an entrepreneur himself, left Goldman Sachs to found a company called Behance, which was acquired for by Adobe for $150 million. He's a best-selling author. He's back to writing again. Uh, so we're going to ask him all about that. Uh, but the cool thing about Scott is that he's got the perspective of both the investor and the entrepreneur, and also corporate America. So a little bit. <laughs> thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want me. to take you first back to the Goldman days. You graduated from Cornell. Oh goodness! And okay. went to <laughs> Goldman, which is like most people's destination. That's where they stop, but not you for know, you. You know, 2001, 2002. You want to be in business. You're looking for an internship or a full-time job, and and people say, oh well, you have to kind of cut your teeth. Um, on Wall Street, especially if you're on the East Coast uh, back then in the early 2000s. And so uh, I did. I migrated to uh, a, a very you know, mundane uh, job on the trading floor at Goldman Sachs. It was 50, 50th floor of one New York Plaza at the time. And I'll tell you, it definitely did whip me into professional shape. I learned a lot. Um, about how the markets work and 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 um, it certainly improved my finance skills. And also a year and a half in, I was like, wait a second, this is not where I'm going to set my career. 
So you realize that sooner than most, I guess. So what you were there for four years? Yeah. So when I when I so when I realized that, I said, okay, finance is not my thing. I am really interested in. I had a design background as well from undergrad, and so I was interested in flexing some of those muscles as well as learning about just how a company is run. I was fascinated with leadership development and succession planning, and how do you you know, how do you, at Goldman at the time, there were many co-heads of teams, like how do these co-heads get along and how did they get selected? And so there was actually a job that opened up in the executive office um, that was focused on organizational improvement and succession planning. And they needed an analyst level person to come in and help. And I thought that was such a cool opportunity to kind of be a fly on the wall, uh, seeing how the firm was run. And so I did that I made that leap, and then I stayed for actually three years before going to business school and, and also uh, starting my company. So you had a plan in the works for a while. You were scrapping away money, saving it, squirreling it away, uh, and so with the hopes of someday starting your own thing? Yeah. When I was in the second job, which I actually really enjoyed at Goldman, I was learning so much. I had a group of colleagues I really um, looked up to that were mo- mostly academics you know, in the world of leadership development who had worked with people like Jack Welch at GE and, and that sort of thing. Uh, and then at night, I was kind of working on my own ideas. And, um, and actually, things really got real, I would say, in 2004 or early 2005 when I met um, another designer by the name of Matias Correa, and he and I started kind of having a bottle of wine at nights, you know, at 9 p.m. after work, and sketching out this idea for what would ultimately um, become Behance. So what is Behance? Or what was so, it? Is it yeah, still around yeah, under Adobe? Yeah, Behance is still around, and uh, it's now a network of over 10 million creatives all around the world showcasing their work and getting jobs and opportunities and that sort of thing. It's probably the largest creative professional network in the world at this point. And so the idea behind Behance was put up your work, have your own personal portfolio hosted on your own domain, but also have all of that portfolio content categorized and organized for people to find it and give you jobs. So when you were starting this company, which it sounds extremely different than banking like you were doing before and being an analyst. (laughs) um, So it was not cool to leave Wall Street for startups back then. You were sort of one of the first. And then there was this wave of people moving from Wall Street into tech. So is that freaky? How did you kind of look at that and you know, it's strange thinking come back to peace with it. it? It's strange thinking back, back about how scared I was to kind of leave, the, leave this comfortable you know, womb of Goldman Sachs where I had healthcare and I had all these little perks. And, and I felt like I was just you know, in the mix um, in New York being employed and uh, and to explain to people that I was leaving to, uh, you know, with this idea, you know, it just didn't really make sense to most. And so actually, I more more often just told the story, oh, yeah, I'm leaving to go to business school, which was in some ways, I have to admit, a hedge. It was like, okay, well, if this idea doesn't work out, at least I can probably get a job again because they'll have seen me just go to business school, which is somewhat normal. Do you think the business school era of your career was necessary it's a great question. I would say it's like fifty-one forty-nine. You know, uh, I can't regret the relationships I made, and um, and certainly some of the things that I learned. Also, I would say that business school does not add a lot of credibility in my field um, of technology and entrepreneurship, and I don't uh, find that it gives me a ton of value. I also think that it's really helpful to learn the playbooks of the past, but when you're really, really innovating at the edge and of, of an industry. The playbooks of the past also can paralyze you. And so maybe it's a helpful to understand them, but sometimes being naive at the top of the funnel of doing something is helpful. You know, it makes you almost think that there's potential beyond what's been done before. And when you know too much about an industry, you get scared away from it. 
And I assume you went to Harvard just yep. because you're so successful. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, there was actually, there's this woman named Teresa Mabale who is a professor at Harvard focusing on creativity and business. And so I actually emailed her um, before I even applied anywhere and tried to ask her about her research. And if I got in, would, would I be able to work with her? And she's like, yeah, sure. If you can get in, like, call me, you know? And so I actually only applied um, to the to, to Harvard and, and um, with the explicit reason of working with her, my essays were actually about building this company to organize the creative world. And, um, and, uh, and I'm sure they were like, I don't know who this kid is, and, but he definitely knows who he wants to work with and what he wants to do. That probably helped me because my scores were not very good. So let me get this straight. <laughs> you were a Harvard guy and a Goldman Sachs guy, and right. yet you chose to bootstrap your startup when you started Behance. Yep. You probably could have raised money, I would assume, with that background from a good number of VCs. It's kind of like being a Google engineer. It seems like the money sure. just sort of rains down on you when you're looking <laughs> for a seed round. So why did you, why put that burden on yourself financially? Why bootstrap? I think there were two reasons. One um, was probably I just wanted to control my own destiny at that point, and I wasn't sure whether this might be a lifestyle business. I mean, we started, we always like to say we were medium centric or medium agnostic, but mission centric. So the mission was to organize the creative world, but we would do it through any medium possible, whether it was a book or a conference or a blog or a technology like the Behance Network. And so I knew that was really a red flag to VCs who would say, oh, you know, not focused. Um, we're not going to invest in a company that's going to spend the money on producing a conference. You know, and I knew that that just didn't resonate. And so I said to myself, okay, I want to control my own destiny here. And I want to be able to do these things because I think they're important for our brand. And also, I want to allow for the ability for this to maybe be a lifestyle business where we provide for the team and everyone can make a decent living and we don't have uh, anyone else owning our equity. And so how long was it that you went without a paycheck? I went without a paycheck for about two years. And your family was cool with it. They're yeah, fine. So listen, it wasn't freaking I mean, scary. I had money saved up from Goldman. I had been there for four and a half years. Um, I had, um, you know, I I had family that was willing to kind of help me on my rent and stuff like that. So I certainly wasn't on my own completely, but I definitely had a small bank account balance. And I was definitely always saying to myself, okay, when am I going to have to get a quote unquote real job? But I, I knew that. I mean, it got to the point where I just wanted the business to succeed so much that I remember actually not even reimbursing myself for taxi receipts because I'd be like, okay, I just want these numbers to look as great as possible. And the lease that I can take out of the business, you know, helps us kind of show that the business is working. And, um, and so I, you know, I just, and I also just wanted to make sure that the team was as comfortable as they could be in this period of time where there was so much uncertainty and we weren't really making it yet. And so at two years, is that when you, I assume, started making money? Because to me, it sounds great to connect the world's creative people, yeah. but it's not obvious how you're going to make money with that. So yeah. how did you kind of get the ball rolling there? So I think that um, we started, our first product ever um, was six months after the company was sort of officially founded in late 2005. And this was a paper product line. And so they were basically a, a designed line of paper products that I actually used to design for myself when I was at Goldman. And it had a really defined area where you capture actionable items and then a sketch area. And the idea was to push designers towards capturing actionable stuff that came out of meetings and brainstorms. And so we put this line out there and Matthias helped like kind of do the final design and make it actually look good. We got it printed by a printer in, in, in Massachusetts and, um, and we it got 
featured on some blogs like Cool Hunting and a few others right away. And immediately there was this kind of loyal following of people that were purchasing these products. And so that was when we first had revenue. And that was when I, and then as that street, as that scaled up and we had a retail distribution channel as well, um, I said, okay, I should probably take a little bit of salary to pay my bills. And, uh, and then that led to a conference, led to us being signed with Federated Media alongside Business Insider and other early publications to, to get ad deals for the page views we were amounting. And um, this is back in the day when there were good CPMs for things like that. Definitely. Yeah. So for people who don't remember what Federated Media was, it was basically the way your company, our company, TechCrunch, Bleacher Report, right. all of the great sites that were founded, <laughs> I feel like, in 2007, 2008, yep. or even a little bit before were funded by this company, Federated Media, who would sell um, ad deals for you right. when you didn't have a sales team yourself. Exactly, which, which we didn't. Yeah. And uh, and for a medium-centric or medium-agnostic platform like us, we didn't have an ad sales team, of course. So that was a perfect partner at the time. And, and that, that's how we bootstrapped the business. And it was really hand to mouth you know, type of, type of activity. We were always maybe a few months away from not making payroll. It made us really feel the granularity of our business and uh, and it was it was extraordinarily tough. Did you have some sort of benchmark in your mind where you're like, okay, if I'm not at this point by this amount of time, I'm just pulling the plug and going back to corporate America? It's a really good question. No, you know, I didn't. And also, and this is crazy, but until we raised venture funding five years into the business, I had never had a conversation with my team about an exit of any sort. Even Matthias and I were the first two people there. We had never even over like coffee, you know, said, well, should we ever exit? It just never was in our lexicon until we had these meetings with investors. We just were loving what we were doing. We felt like it was important. We felt like design was becoming a, a competitive advantage in the, in, the, in the business world. And we said, okay, if we're the number one platform for designers and design is becoming the competitive advantage, we're going to be fine. And so how did bootstrapping for all those years, and then you later raised money from Union Square Ventures and a few others, how did that help your terms with venture capitalists? Well, it helped extremely, uh, it helped really, oh, a lot. The, the, I, wouldn't advise, I don't advise people to do this because it was a, there were many near-death experiences. And we, I do believe that we in some ways squeezed blood from stone at times and maybe survived at times we shouldn't have. So I don't think it's wise per se. Um, however, it's one of those things where if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And so five years in, we were a break-even business. We had a team of over 15 people probably. We had a brand that was established. We had a network that was rapidly growing. We went to raise money and we could do it on our own terms. And we only sold a very small percentage of the company because we had earned that right. But I don't know if the odds were ever you know, uh, good enough to have made that decision wisely. So what are some of these near-death experiences? Ad deals falling through and realizing, oh, our three months of runway just went down to one and a half or people not paying their bills, um, not being able to hire certain people that you needed because you didn't have the cash to do it. Um, the downturn of 2008 uh, when things just kind of went south and I was doing some of these little speaking things for companies on helping them have better organized design teams and suddenly the budgets go away for something like that. Um, realizing that we built our network wrong, basically had to recode the whole thing because it wasn't scalable or that we signed on to the wrong hosting partner and realized, oh shit, they're not going to be able to scale us either. Um, it's all of those things, you know, that each one of it, which it's sort of like death by a thousand paper cuts in some way, but also at times we just realized, oh my goodness, like this may not work. 
And we just persisted. I think it was the team and the culture and the fact that we really liked working together. Also, we were in New York where people weren't always buzzy about like another company that just got funded or another job at Facebook they could get. There was a, a degree of loyalty that I think was essential in New York uniquely to keep our team together long enough to, to survive. One benefit that you get when you have a team of investors or even, and I guess you had a board probably, but when you get investors or strategic investors, they can help make connections for you. They can help advocate your brand. They can be someone to vent to all the time. How do you get through those highs and lows when you're bootstrapping and you don't necessarily have access to all that? Well, I think as a, as the leader of a company, it's always lonely. And, um, and you, uh, you look for mentors and other people that you can go to for specific things. And I think I did that. I didn't have anyone who I could just tell everything to and who could just be there, you know, shoulder to shoulder with me when I, until we actually raised money. Um, and you know, I had the USB folks and other folks on, uh, you know, in the circle, until then, I think I just was really selective about it, and uh, and it was really lonely, and it was and it was it was it was anxiety filled, and I also believe that as an entrepreneur, one of the greatest costs is the constant processing of uncertainty that your brain is managing. It's almost like dedicating twenty percent of your RAM to one task that is always running, and you're never as present with your family or your friends. And you're always just processing. And I think that's really, really hard, but it's part of the cost you pay, the cognitive cost you pay. And so part of the reason why I'm touching on this is that you've kind of coined a term for all this called the messy middle, yeah. which is something that the press doesn't really get to write about or doesn't write about very much. It's usually the launch or the ending of a startup when you sell or something like that or going under. Um, but there's all these things that happen in, in the middle of a startup yeah. that are really hard for entrepreneurs to grapple with. I'm glad you asked about it. It's my obsession you know, lately and over the years, which is that the press and media and everyone else you know, covers, loves covering the romanticism of the start when people quit their jobs and start something and launch a new idea or raise some funding. And then we also love covering and talking about the finish, whether it's an acquisition or an IPO or a bankruptcy. Um, or a uh, or a legal investigation. You know, these are pithy headlines that people love to write about. What doesn't get covered really as often is just everything that happens, as you said, like in the messy middle. And uh, and all of that is really, in my mind, two things. It's endurance. It's enduring that anonymity and the uncertainty and the lack of rewards or financial rewards or or customers or anyone telling you you're doing a good job or anyone even knowing what you're doing. And then it's enduring that and hacking your te- yourself and your team to be able to withstand that. And then it's also optimization. It's constantly optimizing anything that actually is working, like the way your team is working, the way you're hiring, the way you are um, working and being productive, optimizing your product or service, constantly making it better. When anyone says they liked it for some reason, you accentuate that. Um, all of those things are, 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 uh, are make up the optimization side of the messy middle. And I just think it's one of those uh, parts of the journey um, of not only entrepreneurs, but artists and anyone else that people seldom talk about. So the press person and me yeah. if, titling this podcast would probably be something like, man puts $18,000 into startup, right. right? That was your initial investment, wasn't it? Yeah. And turns it into, dun, 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 right, the right. end, the $150 million plus sale to Adobe. Which tells you absolutely nothing, right? I mean, it's, 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 it's the, you know, the, the writer in me would also look for the same pithy whatever, but 
in truth, you know, that was so sort of ancillary to all of the real, you know, the real calculus and, um, and the real strokes of fate and luck and the individuals that joined our team that made all the difference. And there were probably at least a dozen or so people that without any one of them, the stars would not have aligned and Behance would have never succeeded. Well, we do have to talk about the ending a little bit. Sure. So um, you did end up getting this great exit to Adobe. How did that come about? You guys had been partners for a while. Yep. Um, how long had you been talking to Adobe? How does a deal like that come to be? Yeah, well, there was always a relationship. And um, and my attitude was we were never looking to sell the company. We were never um, really thinking about... People always say that. But if you're a first-time founder, you kind of it's hard to not imagine... But also it was in vogue like. to never think about it, too. Right. I mean, you just... You had this idea of, oh, well, you know, Facebook never thought about that. And, like, I'm just going to say I'm focus sure on the long I'm sure he thought term. about that when Yahoo came around. I think Probably. he was pretty close. Well, when you get an offer, you do think about yeah. it. Um, but before you get an offer, you just tell yourself, like, you're in it for the long haul. You have a vision of what this is going to look like years from now. And anything that gets in the way of that, including talking to corp dev people and stuff is sort of noise. And so I really didn't like these sorts of conversations. But sometimes there were partners where I said, okay, they could do an ad buy. You know, they could do a partnership where we could get people who download their products to automatically sign up for a Behance portfolio. Um, there were a lot of things like that. When uh, when they when Adobe decided to make the, the switch from software to service, and really literally overnight, they flipped a switch and they became one of the largest SaaS businesses on Wall Street and over a billion dollars in, in annual ARR um, in, in annual recurring revenue, they realized that they needed a network at the center of their offering. And we were the really, you know, the best alternative out there um, aside from building it. And so it became very clear to me that we were very strategic, that we would not be like a tech acquisition or something that was broken up, but it would actually be like a core product strategy acquisition. I loved the team that I was working with there when I was starting to really get to know them. And then from the financial perspective, the question was, it was really a simple math problem. It was basically, okay, we've taken very little dilution. We've only done one round of funding and it was small. The team owns a lot of the percentage, a big percentage of the company. And if we don't do this now, we're going to have to probably do a B and C. We're going to take this much more dilution. We're going to take this much more market risk for a team that's already been together for five to seven, you know, five plus years. This is... There's a lot of risk there. And if you actually do the math and start to think about it, the outcome of this acquisition versus waiting for five more years and potentially getting bought for 500 or a billion is actually the same. It's literally the same math. So then the question is, well, if that's a really good outcome from an investor perspective and we think it's a really great acquirer and we're going to be really centralized and empowered at this company, maybe this is our parent. Like Maybe this is meant to be. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a good point in that if you look at you know the exits of Huffington Post versus TechCrunch, right? Huffington Post sells for three hundred plus million, TechCrunch twenty to thirty million, but both Mike Arrington, the founder of TechCrunch, mm -hmm. and Ariana Huffington, the co-founder of of Huffington Post, made about the same. Yeah, they both walked away with about ten million or so. I think were the reports. You no, know, it's, it's so I wrote an article recently about the um, the sort of the unicorn space that I was also you know I also shared with Business Insider, and you guys were generous enough to republish it, and it was it was. It was really about this question of um, the economics of these financings and trying to get employees to understand the ramifications of these things. The the obviously the the billion dollar acquisition sounds amazing compared to a hundred million dollar acquisition or a twenty million dollar acquisition. Um, but when you actually, as you're saying, do the math, you start to realize it's all about not only the dilution, 
but also the terms of the financings that the companies have done and what the liquidation preferences are. And, the, and, and there's a lot of other math that happens where when I remember when Tumblr got acquired for a billion dollars, there were people who you know, didn't get much of anything that worked there, right? And you, see, you hear those stories all the time. So it's, it, it should really be about the mechanics of the company and the decisions that were made and the financings and less so that total number that the press likes to cover. So talk a little bit about what employees can do to realize what kind of a situation they're in when they join a startup. What questions should they be asking? Yeah. What do they need to know about stock options? How do you know if, you know, it sounds great when your company raises 50 to 100 plus million, but what does that actually do to sure. you? The two things that I think are important are one is to realize that when you're joining a startup, the likely outcome is nothing. Um, and even if the company does okay and has an exit, you know, it's still, if you're a later stage employee, you should really be making sure that you get it, you get an experiential education that is extremely rewarding, first and foremost. But if you are sacrificing salary, you have a right to upside. And it's, you also have a right to understand what your upside might be. And so rather than suggest to every engineer or designer, anyone else out there to get copies of term sheets and, you know, look, I mean, it's, it's really hard to do all that stuff and to ask a million questions. You're probably not going to get far in the interview process if those are your questions. But what you can do when it's in the final stage of accepting an offer is you can ask a simple question. Based on the equity you're offering me, what would my stake be worth if the company were acquired for $200 million, for $500 million, for $1 billion? Just ask three those, those that question. Your answer might be that if it's acquired for two hundred million, your stake is worth zero. If it's acquired for five hundred million, your stake is worth zero. And if it's acquired for a billion, your stake is worth a hundred thousand or whatever. But at least um, that answer can give you some sense of you know really what's going on. And I think it's the company's obligation to at least give you some directional uh, guidance on what the likely value of your equity would be in those circumstances. And uh, and those are the questions people should ask. And any negotiating tips if you do hear that you're going to, what you're being offered is zero? Well, I think that, um, I think just having that knowledge, you know, allows you to say something like, well, you know, if the, if the company were to be acquired for a billion and I would, and my equity is worth zero, like maybe my, maybe my um, salary should be a little higher, right? So it's that kind of calculus. Um, I also, you know, recently an entrepreneur called me. Uh, with an acquisition offer that he got from one of these unicorn companies. And he said, you know, it was like an $85 million acquisition offer for a company that had raised basically seed funding. And um, he was really psyched about it. And, you know, and, and he had not even asked these questions yet. And when he when he did, because I said to him, if you got your company acquired right now for $85 million in equity from this unicorn company, and uh, and you found out that they ended up exiting at the valuation they raised their last financing at, Ask them like how much you would end up getting. He ended up learning that it was basically nothing, and uh, he didn't go through with it. So I think you know he could have negotiated a much larger acquisition price. I think based on that, um, but he chose not to. Just proceed at all. I think these are the types of questions, and then they open up obviously the types of negotiating points you could you could pursue. Are companies obligated to tell you? I don't think they're obligated to. But then, as a prospective employee, you can decide whether you want to work for them or not. And, uh, you know, that's just part of the calculus. So one thing that you did when you were selling the company is you actually went out of your way to make sure that a lot of your employees were in good shape financially. Yep. Not something that you legally had to do. Uh, You actually looked at how many options they had been granted. 
and how much they would make from the sale. And I think you had a spreadsheet, right? Yeah. Where you said like, okay, this is how much they have. Yeah. And here's how much I think that they deserve. Yep. So talk me through that because that's, um, it's very admirable. You don't hear a lot of people doing things Well, I'll tell like you that. what. Um, I, first of all, selfishly, that was one of the most important things I ever did because I have a team of people that I got to continue working with for another three years at Adobe. And we were all rewarded again for the work that we did because we stuck together. It was like a long-term greedy decision, I would say, um, because we, it, it just, when everyone feels like they're taken care of, they're more loyal and they stay engaged and focus on the right things. And you can have, you know, what I like to call a second coming at Adobe, which is just, you know, doing something all over again and, um, and making an impact and being rewarded for it. I also think that I've already re- already realized that those sorts of stories get out. So I just want to put, like, I want to admit that there is a selfish side to that, right? Yes, but if you had your $100 million right. exit or whatever, you could ride off no, into the money out of your pocket. and never worry about you sure. know, if you piss people off or not. I think that that happens too often. Um, and I think that there's, there's something about, you know, the values of an entrepreneur should be that you should be able to look at everyone that's worked for you, look at them in the eye and know that they feel like you took care of them. And I think it's just, it's, it's, it's like the stewardship role of an entrepreneur is to take care of your team. And I think that goes through in difficult times as well as in great times. Um, my math is very simple. I looked through the whole roster of everyone on our team. And how many people were there? So at the time of acquisition, they'd be like 27, 32, like some, I forget, but something in the high 20s or low 30s. And, um, and what I did with, uh, as an exercise with Will Allen, our CEO, COO at the time, is I said, okay, what would be the re-up grants that we're going to give all these people over the next two to three years? And let's assume that all of them had vested over those two or three years and we had sold the company for you know, 150 to $200 million. What would their stake be worth? And then let's make sure that that's what they get out of this acquisition so that I can go to all of them and, and say, this is what your equity would have been that you were going to get over the next couple of years. This is what it would be all worth once it's all vested. I want to make sure you have that now. And so for the next three years, we can do some of the greatest work of our lives. And we can all feel like this is a result that exceeded our expectations. And we did that for every single member of the team. So you basically accelerated the vesting process? So we accelerated their unvested equity as well as allocated additional value across the board to people based on what we felt like their future grant would have been. Like, for example, we had some incredible engineers who had joined us just six or eight months ago, but really like made the difference between this deal maybe happening and not. But none of their equity had been invested and they'd only gotten one grant so far. We wanted them to be a part of the team for years. And so we figured if we could just synthetically make them realize that they were kind of getting what they would have gotten um, as it sort of locked in, then, um, then, then with some retention, of course, some retention incentive that we could, that we could do that. And so it kept the team together at the expense of some of the, uh, some of the return to the investors and myself. And, uh, one thing I have to say about Union Square Ventures is I had one call with them where I told them this and it was basically, you know, millions of dollars off the top in return for them. They were totally okay with it and supportive. So you have to get buy-in from your investors and the company that's buying you to do this. And I guess for some entrepreneurs, like it's an aqua hire situation yeah. or something where they might not have as much negotiating power during True. a sale. But right. In our case, we did. But Adobe loved this idea because this is to their benefit. I mean, if you think about it, they were having less money go in my pocket and investors' pockets, and they were having more money going into the team with some like retention incentive. So to them, it was like, yeah, sure, this is great. 
Um, it was really out of it was really the sell to the investors that I was worried about, but they were supportive. So it ended up being that about half of those people, like a dozen or so, became millionaires yep. in the sale, which is pretty amazing. So half of your team, um, five years, seven years later, right, a million or more, and uh, and it was it was great. I mean, it's really rewarding, um, and I will never forget the conversations I had with each person. You know, where I knew each each of their situations, I knew about their college loans, I knew a lot about these things. Because as a bootstrap business, you get very intimate with people's financial situations because you're working with them to figure out what what will make it work, and uh, you know, to deliver to deliver that news um, and see their faces, and then share it also with the whole team was probably one of the most like emotional moments of my life. I bet that's yeah. amazing. Well, um, with that, I want to switch gears, put your other hat on a little bit and talk about your investing that you do. Um, Since uh, you left Adobe, you were an executive there for a couple of years after the sale. You joined Benchmark as a partner and now you're a venture partner with them. But you've always been a seed investor um, for as long as I've known you anyhow. And a couple notable things that you invested in very, very early on are Uber, Pinterest, Orby Parker. Periscope, uh, which sold to Twitter before yep. it even really launched. Um, so how do you find these things? And what are you looking for in entrepreneurs to know if they're going to win? Well, I think, um, you know, I, I like to say that a labor of love always pays off. And when I meet entrepreneurs that excite me, solving problems that are interesting to me, and they allow me to roll up my sleeves and dig into product a little bit, um, I geek out over it, and I get involved, and if I can, I put in money. And that's sort of been my seed investor playbook, right, to be, to be honest. And, and, uh, and, of course, when one of those companies does well, then you get more, um, as they call in the industry, deal flow, because people who know that you were in, in, involved with, say, Uber, then say, okay, well, do you want to see this? Do you want to see that? And, uh, and so I, I've, I've enjoyed that part of my life and have dedicated some percentage of my energy towards investing and working with these early stage teams. I think when I went into the full-time general partner role at first at Benchmark, my assumption was that my like love of that would be a proxy for me loving the traditional investor job at a, at a, at a kind of a classic venture capital firm. And I just realized that they're actually very different. And, um, and while there's some of that that you would do, you know, being at a, being at a, at a, at a VC firm, uh, I just liked the flexibility and the creativity and uh, and the problems that are faced at an earlier like seed stage versus like the late stage post momentum Series A or Series B um, that a firm like Benchmark traditionally does, and so that's why I am you know, spending more of my time on like the earlier stage you know venture partner type um, uh, deals now. And uh, but I, I what, what do you look for? I mean, you look for a team that is um, really receptive to feedback, um, really. Um, not just passionate, but also like empathetic with the customer. That's one of the biggest mistakes I see in entrepreneurship is a team that's super passionate about a solution, but they really don't have like empathy with the people that they're targeting. And, uh, and then, you know, a whole suite of other things. So what was the first meeting you had with Pinterest? Uh, ben Silverman, the CEO there, finds you. He's in New York. You're in New York. What, what happens? Well, um, he was building a product that was grid-centric, um, from a design perspective, and Behance was always also a, a grid of projects. He also realized that the most valuable pins um, are were were well designed. You know, they were beautiful pieces of art and design and whatever. But this and, is back in what year? People yeah, this is so when he is two thousand ten. 
um, and Ben Pinterest was already live. It was already getting some traction in unexpected places like Middle America, not popular at all in Silicon Valley. But he had always a design sensibility, and um, and he was going around New York meeting people for product advice. And we were introduced by actually one of our interns was Epi like, Hans? "Yeah, Epi Hans was." Um, was like, oh, you know, I, I know a, a guy who knows a guy who's here looking, you know, and he's building this. And I looked at it and was like, oh, this is this makes a lot of sense. And so we just spent a, a couple hours brainstorming around um, mechanics of pinning something and following somebody and maybe automatically following their boards versus just following certain boards and the problems and, you know, and and, uh, and that sort of thing. And he was actually trying to raise a seed round and was struggling to do so. I, mean, I think yeah, that was why he was in New York in the first place. I remember a story that he told to, I think, Y Combinator people where he said, you know, I, I walked into a VC meeting and, you know, everybody was in there and I was so excited because I thought they were here to hear my idea. And then I realized there's like a plate of cookies on the table. <laughs> and as soon as all the cookies were gone, all the all the people leave. left. Right. Um, so, yeah, he really it wasn't not, it was not a layup bet that you made then. Ben really. Bet, first of all, Pinterest has always been an underdog and it still is today somehow. Uh, but he he is extraordinarily anchored with what his product does for its users. He also is one of those people that's always thinking about process as well as product. And when you ask him what his goals are, sometimes they're actually even more process goals for how his team can better function and perform than they are what the product can become. He's extremely mission-driven. And those are the things that excited me during that time with him. And so even though I had no business seed investing in 2010, believe me, I was barely making a salary at the time, but I uh, told them I'd put in some money. And I, I also wanted to just stay involved with the product conversation. It was one of those things where I just wanted to have another conversation like this and realized if I wasn't an investor, it would be harder to, harder to do so. Um, a similar story with Garrett Camp, which also happened in 2010, where he and I were doing deals together because he was the CEO of StumbleUpon, which he had recently repurchased from eBay. And, uh, and StumbleUpon was one of the biggest drivers of traffic to Behance. And some of the best performing stumbles were photography projects on Behance. And so we were doing some ad credit type of you know deals together. And, uh, and at the end of the meeting, he actually whips out one of our notebooks and shows me this diagram that he had made of, um, of, uh, of the Uber prototype. And which wasn't Uber at the time. Uh, he was going to call it Uber Cab, and and it was basically like a livery service. And he was asking me if I wanted to, you know, help on some of the uh, product and brand stuff, and just be like one of the New York people um, to help them out. And my first blush, first blush response was, "What are you doing? You just bought back your company, and you're now CEO and trying to, you know, grow it. And I'm an entrepreneur as well. Like, wh- why are you building a livery service?" Yeah, and back in those days, I think it was uh, black cars for the 1%, right? Right. So, exactly. I mean, does that sound like a good idea to an investor? To me, when I heard it, I was like, oh, what is this company? I just remembered back to my Goldman Sachs days. I remembered the slips that I used to always have to give the driver who would then send it back to the firm. They would come to the accounting and they go to my assistant and they go back to me for every jar, you know, black car I took. And so I figured, okay, well, maybe you can streamline that process. But you know, good luck getting a firm like Goldman Sachs to work with you. Um, you know, on this like, you know, little mobile app. Um, but again, it was the product problems that they were trying to solve, the back and forth that engaged me. And I just started to feel some 
sense of you know connection to the prototype and this concept and like and then you know then your mind starts to run it's like well you know what if all transportation was done this way and what would that mean for other things like delivery and you know and then it's it's always exciting when you open up a product problem and then it becomes this pandora's box of opportunity and questions and that's one of the things i look for when i meet an entrepreneur so now that you've helped a lot of companies with early stage deals and you've been a seed investor yourself um what advice do you have for people who are looking to raise their first round, um, trying to navigate the whole venture capital scene, uh, figuring out how to get indoors, how mm-hmm. to negotiate terms? Well, I think that uh, I think that the meeting with meeting with uh, individual seed investor angel types who really you can tell a story to that they can resonate with. You can get them excited about some problem that you're solving. When you do that, those people have great connections to other firms. You know, I have a lot of different firms in the seed and later stages that I collaborate with, but it's based on what the company is doing, what the story is, and who the people are. And then I say in my head, you know, okay, who would be like the perfect person to like extend this conversation and bring it to another level and presumably invest. And uh, and so I, I do find one part of you know the one role that I play as a early seed angel type is to help people find you know, their match from a, from a, a larger raise perspective. So I do think you should target angels and, uh, and I, I stay away from angel groups because I find that it's more about the money and less about the story and like one-on-one, one-to-one mentorship and, and, and resonance, you know, in terms of chemistry. Um, so I think that individuals in my just biased opinion are the way to go. Uh, I also think that having like a really good splash page that just emphasizes what your go to market is and you know the marketing copy like all that stuff matters not only for potential customers but for investors who get a pitch and then just go to the website URL it's amazing how many times you know, you'll get a deck or a one pager but then you'll go to the URL and there's like nothing there or even if the company's launched it's just like not really established and updated yet and it's like well that should always be a, a perfect representation of your story because your go to market matters like that's what people are investing in you in the first place so now you've got also this uh, great view of the landscape of what's happening in Silicon Valley and the tech world in general. Um, what sort of trends are you seeing? Are you seeing entrepreneurs all starting to tackle one thing? Um, another thing that's happening in the Valley is we had all this investment flowing through and you had all these companies become unicorn billion plus valuation companies and that seems to have slowed. So how, does, how do you look at the trends of what people are building and how do you look at what's happening in the venture capital landscape? Yeah, um, I'm seeing a lot more uh, uh, of companies building things off of the address book rather than off of Facebook or other established social graphs. Um, and, so through your yeah. iPhone address book, contact right. list, what are people kind of working on in that space? I think anything can be built. That is the that is ultimately the source of truth of your network, right? Is who you have a connection to via email or or phone. Um, and if I can, and if I if 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 the quality of the connection matters more than the number of connections, which I think is another trend, by the way, that you know real connection over over mass connection. Facebook is really just about the number or LinkedIn or whatever. But when it comes to commerce and collaboration and working together, whatever, your network is basically already in your phone. And so I think more products are being built off of that. Um, and, uh, and so I think there's, there's, there's opportunities there, whether it's marketplaces or different things like that. I also think um, that we're seeing 
you know, the whole live video phenomenon is really exciting to me, but it's all, the potential of it is always killed by notifications that just drive us crazy. And so I actually think one of the other sort of auras of, of uh, or levels of innovation is around notifications themselves. How can we make them smart and intelligent? What if you were only notified about something when artificial intelligence knew that you cared about it? And so whenever you're at work, it just didn't notify you about stuff. But whenever you were moving in a car and they knew you were idle and just like hanging out, suddenly you got notifications that your friends were live about something. I mean, that should be happening and it's not yet. And uh, and I think insights like that around maybe even the core operating system that we use will unlock things like live video and other sorts of new modern social networks. And what about what's happening broadly in the tech world right now? You have companies that are raising tons of money. Um, they're waiting a really long time to go public. Um, there's there's just a lot happening. Yeah. How, how do you look at that? Do you think some of these unicorn companies are going to die? Like, if What's the danger of over-raising and, and what are the struggles there? I think that we're going to see um, uh, a lot of them die. And I think it's going to be, they're going to happen at moments where uh, they're not able to raise um, another round because of the climate or because they've just raised too much at this point or they've exhausted any you know investors that would be willing to and then they're going to realize that their unit economics need to come into check and so they're going to stop spending so much money to acquire new customers which means that their new customer numbers are going to go down which means that their valuation is going to go down which means that even if they're good companies they're going to get acquired or go public at a much lower valuation than they last raised which means a lot of employees will not get the return they were hoping which means that they will leave and so you can kind of play that out and you can see that there will be a reckoning um, where there will be a lot of M&A activity uh, that a lot of investors and employees will not benefit from. And, uh, and some companies will probably just go under and, uh, and you know, and, and it's, it's just it's kind of inevitable. I actually don't see how that could not happen. So is now then a good time or a terrible time to start a company? I think it's a great time to start a company because, again, it's it's easier than ever to start something. It is getting increasingly harder to scale, but if you start something that really needs to exist, you will find your audience for it. There are so many new modern ways of raising money like AngelList and crowdfunding. You know, that there is this there's this uh, new upstart publication called The Hustle that just raised $300,000 of seed funding in in one day from their users, from their readers. You're going to see more things like that happen. And, uh, and that's exciting. And I think that a lot of them will, um, will you know, not work, and, a lot, and some of them will. But the point is, is that it's a great time to take that idea that you have and see if it has legs. Great. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented... They'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.